Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. In June, voters in the United Kingdom opted 52% to 48% to leave the European Union. To help us understand the implications of this Brexit, I'm joined today by Fiona Hill. She is the Stephen and Barbara Friedman Senior Fellow and Director of the Center on the United States and Europe here at Brookings. From 2006 to 2009, she served as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. And she is the co-author with Cliff Gaddy of the fascinating look at Vladimir Putin titled, Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin. You can find it on our website. Fiona, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Fred. So, Brexit. Did you expect the Leave camp to prevail in the Brexit vote? I'll be honest, I was um, very pessimistic about the outcome of, of the vote, which already reveals the fact that I was in favour of Remain. Um, I am still a British citizen. I'm a dual US-UK um, citizen, and I'm from the north of England. And um, I'd been you know, going backwards and forwards uh, to the UK for work, for Brookings, for various events, but also staying in close touch with family and friends. And at the end of April, I'd been out to a conference and I'd also been to Ireland, to Dublin, and had several meetings with uh, Irish government officials there on this topic of Brexit. And uh, the Irish government officials I met with were very worried, extremely concerned. And in the meetings and discussions that I had outside of the uh, purview of the Brookings Conference, I actually went to some town hall meetings discussing Brexit and different discussions. I started to get a sinking feeling um, about the outcome. Uh, whenever I was pressed, I would say, well, there was a 50-50 chance, which obviously I was hedging my bets there. Uh, but if you really looked at the polling and uh, looked at things carefully and looked at the whole uh, range of uh, polling options that there were out there, you could tell that there was an awful lot of ambiguity and uncertainty there. Uh, great swathes of Britain in polls just showed that they were completely split on the issue. And I, again, I just had a real sense of foreboding as we got up uh, to uh, the, um, the, the vote itself. And on May 6th, we had an event here at Brookings on Brexit, looking at both sides of the issue. And we had as one of our speakers, John Longworth, who uh, resigned as the head of the British Chambers of Commerce to be a leading light in the Leave campaign. And listening to John and listening to the other participants, it became very clear that this is going to be a very hard vote uh, to sway uh, by the British government on behalf of the Remain campaign because there was so much passion uh, in the Leave side and just an awful lot of cerebral, you know, running the analysis, running the numbers, running the stats, uh, running uh, all of the risks on the part of the Remain campaign. We had Douglas Alexander, a former leading light in the, the British Labour Party, who was extraordinarily eloquent. Uh, but uh, it was very hard for him to basically contend with what was this emotional appeal to let's get back our sovereignty, uh, let's get out there and seize new opportunities. We also had Adnand Menon, who is a professor at King's College London and a team of British uh, analysts and scholars who had been funded by the National Research Council in Britain uh, to do a big analysis of the different sides of Brexit. And just after our event on May 6, Anand Menon released a video that was part of this, doing the pros and cons. And frankly, if you listen to the video very carefully, and Anand made a very balanced um, assessment of the situation. But you looked at the situation outside of London and uh, the pros and cons for people outside of the big metropolis uh, for uh, the EU and the benefits the EU had brought. It was very hard to actually make a clear determination that 
uh, it was to the greater benefit of areas outside of London, the very big cities, to remain in the EU. And I think that was part of the problem. And so, as I said, great deal of trepidation. And I hoped that I'd be proven wrong. But in, in either case, it seemed very likely that if there was going to be a vote to remain in the EU, it was going to be very narrow. And instead, we had the, the opposite. We had a vote that was decisive enough uh, for leave. It was still within narrow margins. But you did have a high turnout. And now a lot of people asking, will there be a redo? Will there be a second vote? But I think it was decisive enough in favour of leave. I'll uh, direct uh, listeners to this episode to go find that May 6th event audio on our website. They can listen to the whole thing. Um, what uh, what kinds of things are you hearing from your own context uh, in Britain, your friends, family, about the, the aftermath of the vote? Well, it's quite split. Um, my elderly mother was the first person I spoke to. She's 82. And um, to be honest, I suppose it's a little humorous. My mum doesn't um, really watch the television. Uh, I mean, she reads the local papers and the local paper had been printed before the results came out. So she'd actually spent a blissful several hours of um, the day after the Brexit vote thinking, uh, in fact, that Britain would remain because all of the people that she'd spoken to and all the indications seemed to be that Remain was in the lead. She was completely shocked when I told her that actually the UK had left. And her first reaction was, oh, my goodness, how did this happen? And then later in talking to her, she's been reading all of the uh, the analysis. And she said, how could, she's 82, how could all these old people, you know, vote to uh, vote to leave and just throw out, um, you know, the promise for, for the younger generation? She said, I can't believe it. It's all the old people who voted for this. So, you know, there's been, you know, some reactions. But I had family members who voted to leave. And the reasons that they voted to leave were quite complex. A lot of them were related to uh, just the idea that the EU was unaccountable, uh, couldn't balance its budget. It wasn't about immigration or any of these issues per se, but there was certainly um, a, a lot of resentment about the fact that if you were an EU citizen, you could come to the United uh, Kingdom without a work permit um, and you didn't have to apply, you didn't have to have a certain salary level to, to get a job. And that this was actually uh, discriminating against uh, others, Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders, people from the uh, British Commonwealth, Pakistan, India, uh, you know, other, other countries, uh, for example, not members of the EU. And so actually I had some uh, relatives and family friends who were from the old British Commonwealth, and they have all voted to leave. Uh, because they didn't like the fact that uh, a Romanian, a Bulgarian and a you know, Pole, for example, would have an easier time coming to the UK and uh, finding a job. You found that an awful lot of the older um, immigrants uh, to Britain from the 1947 period onwards after World War II, when there was a big wave of immigration uh, from uh, former British India and again from uh, many of the old colonial um, holdings of Britain, uh, they also didn't uh, feel uh, particularly enthused about the European Union. So even in, in places that you might have expected with high rates of immigration, it depended on where the immigration took place, where it was from, who the immigrants were, how they felt uh, about Britain and how they felt about Britain's future. And there was an awful lot of people that I spoke to who also thought that Britain, freed of all the regulation in the EU, would be able to pers uh, pursue trade deals with China, with you know, Australia, the Commonwealth, uh, with India, and that this would have a different effect. So I found a whole series of motivations for people uh, for uh, voting to leave. It wasn't all as clear cut. Now, other family members, like my sister, who lives in Spain, are absolutely and utterly devastated. Uh, because uh, my sister actually had to petition uh, to uh, to vote in the referendum because she'd been uh, in Spain 
for 15 years and that was the cutoff. People like me and others who'd been in the, the diaspora for a long time didn't get to vote at all. And she and many other people like her felt that there should have been a super majority. Everybody who was a British passport holder should have been given a chance to, to vote. And that they never had a say, uh, the Brits living in the European Union or Brits living abroad, in uh, the the future of uh, the UK relationship with the EU, which was going to affect them the most. She's applying for Spanish citizenship, along with many other of her colleagues who work for a British franchise in Spain. And then there's all the pensioners and other people who are residents of the United Kingdom but actually couldn't afford to buy property in the UK and have actually bought property in France or in Spain with an eye to eventual retirement, but also as um, not just holiday property, but as they rent at home and they actually have property abroad. And all of these factors are now uh, big uh, questions for all of them. What do they do? I've spoken to some people who are foreign correspondents, British foreign correspondents, uh, for example, who've been out of the UK for decades on their British passport but working in Europe. And, and then, of course, there's all the people who did work for the European Union who will most definitely be out of jobs, and that's already started to happen. We had the resignation of uh, one of the commissioners, Lord uh, Hill, Jonathan Hill, he was in a very sensitive um, position related to finance and the economy. It's obvious that you know it was somewhat untenable for him to keep that position, but at lower levels, less high profile, these were the rotational periods in the European Union where people would have come up for new jobs. And the question uh, for them is, well, if Britain's only going to be in for a two-year period, it seems unlikely I'm going to get this appointment. Uh, and there may be just a, a, an attrition. So a process is already in place where you know people are losing uh, their positions. And we've already seen a lot of discussions about EU institutions that have been based in the United Kingdom, financial and other regulatory uh, institutions, uh, now looking for new homes or being talked about uh, having new homes. And um, this was one of the uh, issues that we discussed um, with the Irish uh, government and other Irish officials and experts in land of April in Dublin about whether Dublin might suddenly have a whole flurry of relocations whether there could be some you know, upside for the Irish economy from this. But Irish overall were much more concerned about the fate of their uh, Irish citizens and you know, all the ties to the EU, as well as, the, of course, the Irish peace process. There's, there's just an awful lot going on here, and so many people concerned about this and not knowing where it's going to end up. Let's talk about the regions of uh, the United Kingdom and how they voted. Uh, we know that London and Scotland and Northern Ireland all voted um, somewhat overwhelmingly to stay in the European Union, while... Um, you know, a lot of other regions in the country, Wales, uh, the rest of England voted to leave. Uh, how, how would you explain or describe um, that discrepancy? Especially interesting is, is Scotland, I think, for uh, a lot of people. Yes, I mean, Scotland is the uh, issue that most people are focused on because, of course, Nicola Sturgeon, the first minister um, of Scotland uh, and the leader of the Scottish National Party, the SNP, went to Brussels uh, for the uh, recent uh, EU meeting and basically made the case that Scotland's vote in favour of remaining in the EU should be taken into strong consideration uh, as the decisions uh, move forward about the future relationship between the UK and, uh, and the EU. Scotland uh, obviously had its own referendum uh, that we're all well aware of back in September of 2014 um, for independence uh, from the United Kingdom. That didn't pass, and there are many reasons why that did not. Um, there was a bigger margin, actually, than uh, the uh, Brexit uh, referendum. But one of those reasons was Scotland's status within the EU. And European Union officials had made it very clear in advance of the Scottish referendum that Scotland couldn't expect to be ahead of the queue for 
a membership, separate membership in the EU if it left the UK. And a number of EU officials were again saying Scotland's part of the UK, we're not going to have a special determination uh, with Scotland again now. But that was definitely a factor in Scotland um, uh, in the vote uh, to uh, remain the United Kingdom. So it's inevitable that the question of a second referendum in Scotland is on the table. Whether that will happen or not in uh, the near term is one of the issues that will have to get resolved as we go along with the negotiations, because I think it will depend to a large extent on what kind of future relationship starts to get worked out um, between um, Scotland, the United Kingdom, and, and then also uh, the e- EU and the UK. There was also the question of, uh, of the currency sterling um, at the time, Scotland not wanting to uh, ultimately rupture the relations, the fall in the price of oil uh, ultimately. That was starting to go down, although it hadn't gone down precipitously at the time of the vote. And then, uh, you know, the history of sort of a shared relationship for 300 years, which, of course, the EU and um, the UK don't really have. You can't go back to 300 years of shared history um, in the way that you could appeal to that in the case of Scotland. Now, um, Nicola Sturgeon is playing a very interesting role in national politics. The SNP became essentially the third party and a major political player in the UK overall. After and Labour and Conservative. That's right. I mean, basically the uh, Labour Party... Um, had a disastrous showing in Scotland uh, in the most recent general election, and partly because the SNP cut into their vote because Labour, the grassroots uh, party, was the uh, at the vanguard of the um, campaign to remain within the EU because there were no Conservative uh, members of Parliament to speak of um, across uh, the border. And the Conservatives actually rallied somewhat in Scotland in the in the last general election. So Labour has been pretty much decimated um, on a UK-wide, um, uh, but most certainly in Scotland. And there are now a large number of Scottish National uh, Party uh, members of Parliament in Westminster in the Central Parliament. So there's a lot of speculation as to whether uh, Nicola Sturgeon could play a role in trying to block uh, the um, process uh, for divorce, uh, whether they could change the terms of this, you know, what role will they play? So there's a lot of intrigue going on um, at the moment, lots of jokes about Games of Thrones and Nicola Sturgeon's the Queen of the North and, you know, people having a lot of fun with this at the same time this is extraordinarily uh, serious. But also because the Conservative and Labour parties are in such disarray that Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP actually look like the adults um, in the room on a national stage, not just in Scotland. And they've, uh, Nicola Sturgeon, to her you know, real genuine credit, has been handling this very well. Well, I want to talk about the, uh, the politics in Britain here in a second. Uh, but first, uh, going over to Northern Ireland, which is a part of the United Kingdom, um, Tom Wright, uh, one of our colleagues, has talked about how for the first time there could be a... Um, Uh, actually a customs wall, if you will, between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And that could have a negative implication for the peace process in Northern Ireland. Can you talk about that? Well, Tom's absolutely right. And um, he has uh, spoken very eloquently on this issue. We had uh, another event um, just um, after the the Brexit uh, vote. And um, Tom spoke at great length also on this uh, event, uh, giving a very thorough analysis of what uh, what could happen there. The issue for Northern Ireland, Ireland, uh, the Republic of Ireland and uh, the United Kingdom is that the EU provided the frame for the peace process as well as uh, the EU providing quite a bit of funding for various initiatives and activities uh, around uh, the peace process. Um, 
in the form of you know various infrastructure grants, but also you know direct um, funding to peace initiatives and other you know public private um, efforts to move the whole process along. And of course, the borderless zone between Northern Ireland and Ireland was a really big deal here, because if you look at the vote, well, you can really see the influence of that cross-border activity. Parts of Northern Ireland that voted most clearly to remain, because it was a split, not all of the uh, various counties of Northern Ireland uh, voted to uh, remain. Some voted to leave, and there was a split in Belfast um, itself. But there was a clear vote to remain in the EU on the borders with the Republic of Ireland. Because, you know, obviously so many of uh, the local agricultural uh, sector and the industrial sector has benefited from the open borders. So the question now is, what happens there, as you rightly pointed out? There's a worry that, you know, as this is now going to be a frontier between the European Union and the United Kingdom, will those customs posts at least have to go back? What will happen to the free movement? Now, Ireland, the Republic of Ireland and the United Kingdom have a free movement agreement that goes back to just after the Easter uprising. Um, it goes back you know, decades. And that allows for currently 800,000 Irish citizens to live and work within the UK. I mean, that's separate in many respects from the mobility provisions that we see within the European Union. So now, you know, kind of there's kind of question about how are you going to manage all of this? And there's a great deal of concern on the part of the Irish government, as well as uh, those in Westminster, that this is um, all going to become contentious again. There was a, a, a gambit made by the leaders of Sinn Féin, uh, the nationalist uh, party that was always a cease associated in, in a popular conception with the IRA about the question of a united Ireland. Finally, we've got the 100th anniversary of the Irish uprising and the creation of uh, the Irish Free State uh, just behind us at the, in April of, of this this very year. So, you know, talk about um, uh, a, a major symbolism and uh, the significance of a major anniversary and all of this happening all against that uh, that backdrop. It obviously does put that issue. Could there be a United Ireland back on the table? But it's obvious that they would make this gambit. But it's not obvious that that's where this is going to lead. Just as it's not obvious that this is going to lead to um, the uh, independence again of Scotland. It's a possibility, but there's an awful lot of things that have to be uh, worked out here. I need to say this is just a major complication. Then there's an additional complication to all of this, which is Gibraltar. I mean, most people forget about Gibraltar, and um, I can't say that I was thinking a great deal about Gibraltar. Uh, but when you look at the outcome of the referendum, a very small population there, but overwhelmingly 96, 98% in favour of Remain. Well, why? Because they have, again, an open border with Spain. It's a contested territory. The Spanish have already said, look, you know, if the UK leaves, we want to have co-sovereignty with Gibraltar. And that's going to have to be worked out as well. What about now uh, in terms of British politics? You mentioned Nicola Sturgeon and the Scottish National Party. We know that uh, David Cameron, the Conservative leader, has resigned. Um, Boris Johnson has said he's not going to stand for PM. And in the Labour Party, uh, I think it's Jeremy Corbyn is uh, probably on his way out. In fact, David Cameron told him to leave in Parliament. It was quite extraordinary. What is uh, what is happening with um, British politics and who's who's going to be the next prime minister? Well, British politics is a bloodbath. Um, this uh, referendum was the result of British politics, Conservative Party politics. And, you know, what it has done, um, instead of resolving uh, internecine strife inside the Conservative Party, it's you know basically thrown it out into the whole country. Um, you know, it just shows again 
there that if you decide to have a referendum, you should be very careful because the question that you uh, might be asking uh, might not be the question that everybody's responding to and it may also not resolve the issue that you want to uh, actually uh, put out to a broader um, uh, a broader vote. So what we've got now is a bloodbath inside of the Conservative Party that was um, you know, the inevitable result of all this jockeying for power among a group of people who all come from not just uh, the party itself but from similar backgrounds, have known, known each other, some of them seem to have had rivalries since their school days, uh, Boris Johnson and uh, David Cameron, but also Michael Gove, uh, the, the, uh, the you know, for, uh, education um, secretary and uh, again part of this uh, kind of tight group of uh, people all of the same uh, rough age and again very similar background and they're all uh, essentially fighting with each other. The Labour Party very similarly, uh, Jeremy Corbyn was the choice of the grassroots members of um, the uh, Labour Party. I and many others have made the parallel between him and Bernie Sanders. He's the the traditional left of his party. Um, he's somebody who's always stuck to his principles. Um, he was voted from the grassroots because he wasn't part of the Blair, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown uh, class of uh, professional politicians, bright young things from... Uh, Oxford who studied politics, philosophy and economics, which seems to be de rigueur for British politicians uh, these days. Um, he was uh, you know, from uh, kind of a left-wing intellectual background. He's from North London, uh, the readership of The Guardian, you know, the sort of the classic intellectual uh, socialist. But he was somebody who was very principled and had never really wavered. And he's got caught because the parliamentary party uh, so the members of parliament who um, didn't uh, vote for him at all and uh, or at least not, not for the most part and uh, were uh, somewhat um, uh, opposed uh, to him and have had many divisions with him wanted to uh, remain within uh, the European Union but a lot of the grassroots electorate wanted to leave. And Jeremy Corbyn was known for being pretty Eurosceptical himself and he put in a pretty lukewarm effort uh, in the Remain campaign, this wasn't the same, you know, rousing defence of the union that was done by Labour in Scotland. This was a very half-hearted effort. Uh, it was mostly led, um, with, certainly with passion and emotion, by Sadiq Khan, uh, one of the rising stars in the Labour Party, has become uh, the mayor of London. And uh, London, obviously, for the most part, voted overwhelmingly to remain in the European Union. And, you know, Jerry Co Jeremy Corbyn is now being caught between a rock and a hard place between uh, the members of parliament of the Labour Party who were never thrilled about him in the first place and now very angry with him for not doing much on uh, the cause of Remain. And there's some in the grassroots who uh, feel, well, well, he shouldn't have been voting or, or campaigning for Remain in the first place. He's still got uh, grassroots support, but the kind of question is now, how is that going to play out? I mean, he had a, an overwhelming vote of no confidence in him uh, by uh, the members of the parliamentary party. And uh, that's the reason why uh, David Cameron said to him, you know, for God's sake, man, resign. And David Cameron has pulled up uh, the date of his departure into September, uh, you know, partly because you can't have this uncertainty go on forever. So there's a lot of talk now about whether the, the general election, which is incredibly ironic because we had a general election just a couple of years ago. David Cameron won a resounding majority, which, as Tom Wright and others have pointed out, was actually part of his problem because he was no longer in a coalition government that he thought would be a restraint uh, on the push uh, to leave uh, the EU. And when the Conservative Party won more of a resounding victory in the general election, the members of his party start to push for um, uh, leaving the EU. I mean, this is 
sounds confusing because it is confusing. And it's basically personal rivalries, political rivalries, uh, party politics and uh, the complexities of the way that uh, the leadership um, uh, choice plays out in both of these parties with grassroots and parliamentary parties. And then a complete... um, differences of opinion um, across Britain. And you'd mentioned before about the the different uh, cities. Um, Some of the larger cities of Britain voted very clearly uh, to uh, remain within the EU, Manchester, Liverpool. Places like Newcastle was just more of a slight margin. Birmingham, Sheffield uh, voted uh, to leave. And these also reveal very interesting things. I mean, a lot of the, of, uh, the bigger cities are run by Labour councils, um, uh, but you know they're much more connected to the European uh, Union and more connected to London in uh, some regards with industry and um, uh, uh, big universities where there's been uh, an influx of uh, research uh, grants. Um, Birmingham, Sheffield are the old industrial cities where they actually had an influx of, emigrant, of immigrants uh, from the old British Commonwealth. Um, and they haven't necessarily benefited in the same way from you know, connections uh, with the EU. It's really what might one might call the tertiary cities, uh, where which are also Labour strongholds, but have been, um, uh, I would say, um, shifting over uh, quite a lot of period of time with the UK Independence Party, Nigel Farage making major inroads that voted very clearly to leave. And these are all places that have been really... Um, cut off for decades. These are places that went into a long decline after World War II and never really recovered. And there's been a lot of talk in the US press. There's uh, Sunderland, um, uh, one of uh, the cities which I know well. My mother used to work in Sunderland. I've got relatives um, from Sunderland and nearby Hartlepool and Redcar, all these places. I thought my grandmother was from um, Hartlepool. These are places um, that, yes, they've got a few factories now. There's a Nissan and uh, a factory in uh, Sunderland that um, had uh, infrastructure grants and uh, subsidies that the EU helped with. But there's still mass unemployment. And it's entrenched unemployment. And it's unemployment that has persisted since the 1950s. My mother used to work in the slums of Sunderland as a health visitor and a, and a midwife. And she's described some pretty harrowing experience in that period. And if you go back to these same parts of Sunderland now, they haven't really improved very much. Uh, Hartlepool um, has had you know very little going on in terms of employment uh, for decades, and Redcar, one other of the uh, cities, just lost its steel plant. This is because of cheap Chinese steel, but it's again a product of globalisation. And so a similar thing actually happened in Wales. Port Talbot, the big steelworks there, closed down recently, and there was a strong feeling that the government should have intervened to to maintain the steelworks. Uh, but there's a, a sense that this was stopped because of EU you know, regulations and EU prohibitions against state um, uh, intervention. Now, you know whether that is all really the case or not, that's how it's perceived and how it's seen and how it's been presented in a lot of the local media. So these places were feeling, you know, we've had decades where there's been no improvement. The EU is incredibly remote. Um, yes, we've got a leisure centre here. You know, we've got um, you know some funding for tourist sites, but that doesn't really create the kind of jobs on a large scale that you need. And there's also a barrier to moving to the next cities up. You know, if you live in Sunderland and Hartlepool and Redcar, it's actually hard to move to Newcastle or Manchester and forget moving to London because you've, house prices are incredibly depressed, or people don't own their houses. They're still living in public housing and council estates. How are they going to move? 
And in the 1980s, when a lot of the industry was closing down, um, one of uh, the government ministers under Margaret Thatcher, Norman Tebbit, famously told people in the North they should get on their bikes and look for work. There's a limit to how far you can get on your bike and cycle, either in a day or how are you going to move house on a bicycle? And there was, you know, so there's that sort of sense of resentment that goes back you know, 30, 40 years that is really kind of festered up. And in the um, some of the interviews that were done around the Brexit campaign, people who were interviewed in these northern cities, these very depressed northern cities, said, we've been forgotten about up here. And lots of the bigger infrastructure plans for high-speed railway were not going to affect them. They used to have mainline stations. Those railway stations have closed down. Lots of people don't own cars. You know, so this is a this is a, a very difficult question about mobility within the United Kingdom, very similar to problems we've had in the United States where mobility here, as many of our Brookings colleagues have shown, has also slowed down. And where big cities have prospered, especially along the Northeast Corridor here in the United States, but the Northeast Corridor equivalent, which is the literal Northeast and the North in the United Kingdom, has not prospered at all. It looks much more like places like Detroit and Flint, Michigan, you know, than it does a, a Washington, New York and, and Boston. Well, just as is said in the United States, all politics is indeed local uh, in Britain as well. But what effect, if any, does Britain leaving the EU have on that country's participation in some of the global and regional institutions like the G7 and NATO? Well, in the G7 and NATO, it's not especially, uh, at least initially, affected by that. Britain is also, of course, an occupant of a UN Security Council seat. And these are all factors um, uh, dating back to Britain's role in World War II and uh, post-World War II role. And Britain didn't join uh, the European Union fully until 1975 when there was another you know, referendum and was certainly part of NATO and on the UN before that. The G7 has been on uh, the basis of um, Britain's standalone economy, not in a EU context. And the other members of the G7, I mean, there's not the EU is not a member of the G7. And it's but the there fourth are other... or fifth largest economy Correct. in the world still. Now, the question will be whether... Brexit has an impact on that standing. But, you know, for now, um, we'll, we'll just have to see. I mean, obviously, currency markets and the banking sector, finance sector have been hit. But, you know, we're already seeing something of a recovery there. And, and really how this is all handled over the longer term will have a determinating factor on this. NATO is another question. We're just about to have the NATO uh, summit in uh, Warsaw. And maybe by the time this airs, the NATO summit will have um, will have already happened. Uh, Britain is a, a major... Um, contributed to NATO uh, in terms of uh, defence capacity and also spending on its defence budget as a percentage of GDP. But if British GDP uh, takes a hit, of course, that percentage of GDP will amount to a lot less. And there will be, I think, a debate in Britain now about uh, the future of uh, British defence and British defence cooperation because it'll be based on spending. One of the key elements in the Brexit debate was about spending on the National Health Service, one of the great storied and most beloved institutions in the United Kingdom set up after uh, World War II. And one of the motivating factors um, for many people uh, voting to leave was the strains that had been put on the NHS by immigrants and others, uh, in their view, coming and using NHS uh, facilities, but the NHS not getting fully reimbursed uh, for the costs of covering this medical coverage. We heard about the campaign buses for leave that said Correct, that, that we'll said, get... you know, all the money that we send to the EU on a weekly basis will put back in the NHS. And of course, that's been completely walked back because it was unrealistic. And in fact, you know, the amounts were not accurate in the first instance. So one of the questions will be whether there'll be now a debate about, you know, what we traditionally call guns and butter, or in this case, we could called guns and bandages, you know, whether they um, 
there'll have to be some trade-offs uh, to boost NHS spending because that's clearly um, one of the factors that people want to see. And will that mean that you know Britain's budget will uh, will be squeezed and whether well, there'll be less to be spent on defence? So, uh, Britain was supposed to be having two new aircraft carriers in addition to a slew of other uh, new equipment. And of course, Britain has made um, a series of uh, very important commitments uh, for helping to beef up uh, the defences um, in the Baltic states and in Poland in response to the recent activities of, uh, of Russia uh, in terms of the, the naval and uh, air incursions of, uh, of NATO countries' airspace and uh, NATO partners. So this will be uh, a big question. And there's also on the table uh, the issue of Britain's nuclear deterrent. That was already put out there in 2014 during the Scottish referendum because the Trident submarine um, base is in Scotland, in Fast Lane. That's the nuclear submarine fleet. And Scotland, um, under an SNP government, uh, if it had been independent, made a commitment to uh, unilateral nuclear disarmament. And so there will still be a question now about the future of Britain's uh, nuclear arsenal. And a number of people have been you know, writing about this as a piece in the atomic, uh, Bulletin of Atomic Scientists um, that uh, I, I just spotted today. And, you know, my uh, colleague here, our colleague here, Stephen Pfeiffer, um, who uh, works on our arms control and proliferation um, uh, initiative, has also raised that question about whether that will be back on the agenda for Britain as well. So we should watch this very carefully. Let's turn our attention now uh, to the east, to one of your uh, other main areas of expertise, which is Russia. Uh, you recently compared this referendum to that held by um, the Soviet Union under Mikhail Gorbachev in 1991. What's the comparison there? Well, in 1991, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev uh, was uh, in a similarly beleaguered state to uh, David Cameron different sets of reasons, obviously. I mean, I don't want to say that the Soviet Union and the United Kingdom are the same uh, country, but there are some structural similarities. The Soviet Union was a big multi-ethnic uh, country. Britain's a small multi-ethnic country. Uh, but they were also um, asymmetric federations. The, technically speaking, um, a number of uh, Soviet uh, republics had the right to seek independence. I mean, Scotland had to have its uh, right to seek independence. Also, confirmed by uh, the Westminster Parliament. So I mean, there's you know, some differences uh, here. But there was a period after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the breakup of the Soviet bloc in the late 1980s when you started to see national separatist movements really taking shape and actually having a lot of political influence in the Soviet Union. So the Baltic states, uh, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, were clamouring for independence. And of course, they had been illegally annexed uh, by the Soviet Union during uh, World War II. Georgia and Armenia uh, were also raising questions about uh, independence. There was a, a dispute between Azerbaijan and Armenia that we still have over Nagorno-Karabakh, where there'd already been violence. And there were mutterings in uh, Ukraine and in Russia itself, like England. Uh, the Russian Federation, Boris Yeltsin had just become uh, the uh, the head of uh, the Russian Federation as a separate republic. People forget this, that Russia was a separate republic, a separate federation within the Soviet Union. And Gorbachev was just under an awful lot of pressure. And he decides in the early part of 1991 to hold a referendum on a new union treaty to hold the union together in a little bit of a, an approximation to a treaty on union with the European Union. 
and several of the republics just refused to participate. Now, the Union Treaty passed. Uh, uh, Central Asia and a, a whole host of other republics voted overwhelmingly to remain, but it was the republics that didn't participate that became the problem. And then Gorbachev was under pressure from hardliners saying he was being too soft on all this, he should have clamped down, he should uh, quash these national separatist movements. And then there was a coup in August of 1991 by hardliners. We might all remember that. You might remember the image of Boris Yeltsin mm-hmm. getting onto the, the tank and in front of, the, know, White House. In front of the White House and you know talking down the coup plotters and rallying the population uh, behind them. And Gorbachev was in, of all places, because of you know, recent history, Crimea and his vacation home, and he'd been put under house arrest. Yeah. I just uh, graduated from college with my degree yeah, in Soviet might, studies. Exactly, me too. And a Soviet studies degree became you know, obsolete by... Exactly, that's why, that's why I ended up doing history later in university. You and I are the same generation watching all this and thinking, ooh, okay, maybe we didn't make the right decision here. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, Gorbachev was released, and uh, the next thing you have, uh, Boris Yeltsin... Uh, colluding with the heads of uh, Ukraine and Belarus in a hut in the Belarusian woods uh, to uh, dismantle the Soviet Union and create a Commonwealth of Independent States. So my point was rather that referenda can take on life of their own. And when you've got these machinations of politics and independent individual agendas, we had, uh, I made the comparison between Boris Yeltsin and Boris Johnson, you know, really trying to manoeuvre about Boris Yeltsin. It was a a power play, a power play, you know, for him uh, and uh, for Russian Federation. They wanted more equality between uh, and among uh, the republics. But Boris Yeltsin clearly thought that the Commonwealth of Independent States would keep everywhere together, and it did not. It It lent to the dissolution uh, over time of the ties and the relationships uh, between Russia and uh, the other republics. I mean, we've now had uh, an effort to do a redo and turn that back again by Putin and uh, with the annexation of Crimea and the war in the Donbass of, uh, of Ukraine. But we also then had a whole host of processes within the Russian Federation itself where there were constituent peoples of Russia, even though uh, Russia... And Russians, you had an 80% majority of Russians within the Russian Federation. You saw 20% of people from somewhere else. And you had places like Tatarstan and Chechnya that also thought they should have independence. And so the process kept on going. It became very contentious. And Russians had a serious identity crisis. They didn't know who they were. And you've had the rise of Russian nationalism. And that's what you're seeing in England, an identity crisis of the English. Who are we? They were the first among equals in the United Kingdom, also the first among equals supposedly in the whole of the Russian Empire. They were an imperial people, like the Russians. Their language dominated. But who really are the English? Just like who really are the Russians? Because so many people are of mixed heritage. It's not just the Irish citizens I was talking about earlier who live in um, uh, England. It's all the people with Irish ancestry, Welsh, Scottish. David Cameron's name indicates, as I said in the blog piece, uh, somebody of a, a Scottish heritage, even if not all of his family are, you know, uh, uh, identified with being uh, Scottish. And that's what you have in Russia today. So many people of mixed heritage, a really hard time passing who is a Russian. And this is the kind of thing that's playing out now in England with the UK Independence Party, people trying to define themselves. The sense of being British is is disappearing. Well, you uh, you just mentioned Vladimir Putin, who was plucked out of uh, somewhat obscurity by Boris Yeltsin out of St. Petersburg. Now, of course, he's the president of Russia. Uh, he called the dissolution of the Soviet Union the greatest catastrophe. So how do you think he sees uh, this vote in the United Kingdom? 
Well, he got dragged into this vote uh, by David Cameron and many British politicians and many others commenting on the fact that the only person who's going to uh, really uh, be pleased with uh, an outcome where the United Kingdom leaves the EU is um, is Vladimir Putin. I mean, there's been all kinds of headlines about this, and Putin got a bit testy in the run-up to the election, saying, "Look, I've said nothing." And, it, and to be uh, fair to Putin, he hasn't said anything publicly. Plenty of other people in Russia have said things. You know, Russian oligarchs in London saying, "This will be great. We're out the EU." Although. I doubt that the value of their holdings will uh, have been retained in the, the next several weeks. They have London. a lot of holdings, yeah. The value of the pound and you know their property in Mayfair and uh, Pimlico and you know all the other places, uh, Grosvenor Square and all the other places that they you, you know where the oligarchs have um, have houses. Uh, uh, men, plenty of uh, Russian Duma members, Russian members of the Russian Parliament, um, other Russian officials have uh, reacted with considerable glee over this, just like other populist and nationalist uh, figures across Europe, like Marine Le Pen. Putin has been more circumspect, and you know, one of his comments in this was, "Well, this is you know a, a British decision, and it will have positive and negative effects for for Russia." Now that sounded a little obscure, but um, the positive effects, uh, Russia has obviously been not exactly thrilled by an expanding European Union uh, and certainly not by an expanding NATO. This is the proximate cause of many of the disputes and certainly the confrontation um, over Ukraine. The Russian position on the EU has been remarkably similar to many of the Brexiteers, which is customs union, single market, fine, political Europe, not fine. Uh, because that it's the political Europe, in Putin's view, that has imposed sanctions against um, Russia in the wake of the annexation of Crimea and in the war in the Donbass. Um, it's the political Europe that has tried to expand by offering association agreements and deep and comprehensive free trade association, uh, rather, ag agreements with uh, Ukraine and um, other uh, countries uh, that were formerly part of the Soviet Union, uh, which Russia has uh, opposed most vehemently. And, of course, was all this discussion about EU and NATO uh, drawing together on a more cooperative basis um, to uh, try to take advantage of the EU's own security arrangements that have been focused on humanitarian um, interventions and on uh, peacekeeping and on conflict prevention. And, and Russia didn't like any of this. And Russia also uh, has long felt that it was easier to have bilateral deals with countries than it was having multilateral deals. And the Russian EU negotiations for a new partnership had pretty much stalled and then, of course, been completely derailed by uh, the conflict in Ukraine annexation of Crimea. So on the surface, this looks very positive uh, for Putin and for Russia and for you know many of uh, Russian interests, a weaker EU, uh, uh, an EU that is no longer uh, with the United Kingdom, you know, a big dominant Euro, uh, economic player, the EU's claim to being, you know, one of the big economic players becomes diminished with the UK out of this. Uh, that seems to float Russia's boat further up. But I would argue that over the longer term, all this uncertainty, there's a lot of unpredictability in this. And Putin's other point that this could have negative um, ramifications is also the right observation. Yes, lots of opportunities to exploit here. But I wouldn't bet that all of this is going to come out particularly positively. I think that the you know the world as a whole um, uh, is going to go through a much more uncertain phase, as um, Hami Haras and um, some of our other colleagues, uh, Aaron Klein, on a, the event that we uh, had earlier on Brookings on the aftermath of Brexit, pointed out we're in a low growth period anyway, a period of great economic uncertainty, a, a, a period where there's a backlash against uh, trade deals, and 
there will be a depression of commodity prices and the Russian economy is heavily dependent on commodity pricing. So that will create a lot more uncertainty there. And there will be, you know, obviously uh, just much more of a difficult political environment to navigate. Yes, opportunity, but, you know, a crisis is also a crisis. Well, Fiona, let's uh, let's wind up this conversation by looking uh, ahead. There still remains the Article 50 uh, trigger that the British government has to uh, basically submit to the EU to begin the, the actual divorce proceedings. Is there any chance that it actually won't happen, that the British politicians will just maybe face the wrath of the, the Leave voters and say, you know, we're going to do this vote again or we're, we're not going to really leave or, or some other arrangement is going to happen? There's a lot of talk about that, but, you know, the vote has already resulted in some pretty high emotions, not just in British politics, but also in uh, the European Union. And uh, during the you know European Council uh, meetings um, that uh, took place just right after the the vote the the following week, there were some pretty heated exchanges in the European Parliament and elsewhere about this. Uh, the French government and others are pushing for a speedy Brexit. Um, we've uh, we mentioned before that there's been resignations of uh, British officials uh, from the Commission, um, Lord Hill, um, other. You know, British uh, officials who were in, you know, what's essentially the European Union's foreign ministry, the European External Action Service, um, are not likely to get uh, new appointments. There starts to be a momentum of its own here. People have been acting already as if Britain's gone, even though Britain actually remains in the EU for, as you've rightly pointed out, this whole period. I mean, once you trigger the Article 50, it's all kind of fairly obscure of the Lisbon Treaty. And Tom Wright, you know, our colleague here, um, uh, is incredibly steeped in this. And you know, I think anybody who wants to know more about this you know, should check out the, the blog pieces and the pieces that Tom Wright has um, uh, been uh, producing because they're very insightful on this uh, topic. We've got a, a process that has to take place within a two-year period, and it's right that they might not reach an agreement. But parallel to that, there can be all these discussions about a new way forward and a new relationship. But there are some uh, considerable sticking points. It's it's the uh, free mobility of labour. Uh, Boris Johnson uh, said afterwards, oh, I don't think that was actually really a, a factor in uh, the, the vote. He knows damn well it was a factor in the vote. Uh, it was one of the major factors in the vote. And there's no getting away from that. So any arrangement that um, means that the United Kingdom still has to essentially pay, uh, as Norway does and Switzerland and uh, other uh, countries that want to be part of the single market, uh, large sums of money, not that dissimilar to the money, that, uh, the, the, the sums that they've already been paying to the EU and to accept uh, free uh, mobility of labour is not going to be much of a, a starter. So there's going to have to be a really serious discussion here about this works out. And doing the vote over again or you know, is going to be very difficult. Now, there could be a second referendum on the deal. Uh, and I think you know, Tom and others have, uh, have talked about this. But the, if the, it, it makes it very hard, though, to think that the relationship could look like it looked on June 23rd uh, before uh, we actually had the vote. Uh, or before the uh, voting results uh, came in on the on the twenty fourth, there is, however, an opportunity I think for sensible minds to prevail. One of the contenders for the Conservative Party leadership, Theresa May, has been the Home Home Secretary, uh, has talked about having a sensible and orderly process. Uh, she was in favour of Remain, although she was quite quiet uh, throughout the campaign. Um, she hasn't come out saying we should stay, but she's talked about a sensible and orderly process. And Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, has also tried to 
take the emotional tone down. There's a number of uh, European officials who've also said, look, this could be an opportunity for us to think about a constitutional change within the EU. We can have, we've all, everybody's been talking about multi-speed, multi-vector, multi-geometry for the EU, all kinds of different ways of trying to get at the same idea that not everybody um, has to have the same form of membership. You could still have a core that moves forward with the Eurozone of you know the original, perhaps uh, then some other uh, members of the European uh, Union. Perhaps you could find some different format for UK, EU that then countries like Turkey in the future could uh, be fitted into. It would be a demotion of uh, the... EU-UK relationship and maybe a slight elevation of uh, the Turkish-EU relationship. There was lots of talk about a special relationship for Turkey that would be short of membership. Maybe, you know, we can work something like that out uh, with the UK. This is a time for creative thinking. I think going back and thinking, let's just have a redo and, you know, let's just have this referendum over again and admit a mistake and go back to where we were just doesn't seem tenable. And again, the emotions in this... Uh, you know, uh, it's not just you know the French government, the Spanish, and many others, but the EU Parliament, and also in Britain itself, there was a significant number of people who voted to leave. And perhaps anecdotally, a number of people are saying, "Well, you know, if I'd known this, I would have voted differently." We don't know um, statistically how many people that would be, and the people who didn't vote. And yes, there's been this big petition. Um, I heard recently three million people. It was two million just um, uh, earlier. There's been all the demonstrations of younger people and the turnout among the youth was very low, but they made a decision not to turn out. And, I mean, that's a lesson for ourselves for what's going to be a very contentious presidential election here. Voting matters. You had better vote. And I deeply regret that I didn't have a vote in uh, the UK. I have a vote in the United States, and I'm certainly going to exercise my vote and not think that because I live in a certain area, my vote doesn't count because, oh, yes, everybody always votes this way. One should never think that. And I think that this is... Uh, proof if we ever needed it and you know our colleagues in governance uh, studies are always making that point to us that your vote really does count and in the case of a referendum it certainly counts well fiona let's uh, let's end it there on that uh, forward-looking note thank you so much for your time today thank you fred you can learn more about fiona hill and the center on the u.s and europe on our website brookings.edu slash c-u-s-e and keep visiting our website in the weeks to come to get new analysis and commentary about brexit and that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer. Editing help from Mark Holscher. Plus, thanks to Chris Anichi, Bill Finan, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, Rebecca Weiser, and our intern, Sarah Abdel-Rahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. You can send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dukes.